The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. So I'm delighted to be here with all of you. It's always such a joy. I think that there are so many people that are interested in practice. So many people interested in what we're all doing, which is quality, uh, cultivating a way of being for ourselves and in the world. And it's such a rare thing. I mean, there's so many things you could be doing tonight. <laughs> and you're here. It always never ceases to amaze me. So thank you. Thank you for your presence and your practice. It is very significant. And it is very rare. <clears throat> so as I mentioned earlier, I have uh, some reflections. And it's really for your consideration. And at the end, uh, I'll open it up so that we can explore this a bit together. <clears throat> so the topic for tonight, I'm loosely calling From Fear to Courage. And this topic was uh, inspired uh, by a question from my mom, who's here tonight. Uh, who asked me if I would talk a little bit about um, how to keep an open heart and an open mind in the midst of all that's happening, everything that's happening in the world right now. And we're all affected by it because we're all part of the human family. We're connected to the planet. There's so much that's happening. And I think there's a lot that... um, this practice that we were just doing for about half an hour can teach us. And part of what I'm going to do is offer some of that. And I'll unpack it a little bit. And I'm always trying to unpack it from the space of direct experience. So even though the bell was rung, kind of signaling the end of the formal meditation practice, it actually never ends. That's just the part of the practice is even in this moment. So as you're listening, I invite you to see if you can stay with your own immediate experience. Notice what's arising. Notice what thoughts are there. What's showing up in the body? Are there emotions? So we can stay connected, staying very close to our experience, not giving up our own authority. This is the courage to stay with what's happening. So I was going to start tonight with a quote. This is a quote that I um, read actually recently. It was from a periodical uh, called The Week uh, that summarizes a lot of uh, the news in the world. And this was uh, a note from the editor. uh, And it was their last issue before the end of the year. And so I'm always interested to see what the editor has to say. And in this particular one, Uh, the editor was reflecting on the year. And so this is what he said. I'll read it to you because I think it frames so much of what I'm going to talk about. He says, if there is a theme to the year, we're now concluding it is fear. And the extreme measures Americans are willing to embrace in their yearning for security. Americans seem to be increasingly defined by what we fear. If you believe what you read on the internet or hear in presidential debates, 
you're likely to conclude that the end is near. And he goes on to say, it doesn't matter which side of any particular issue you're on because it's which side do you fear more, right? So you can pick any of the major issues that we're struggling with as a community, as the world, and you can see that so much of this is rooted in a fundamental anxiety, a fundamental fear. Am I on the right side? Am I on the wrong side? The other side is wrong. I'm right. Or a sense of, if that happens, it's going to be terrible. And so we can get caught in this frame, this mental state of fear. So why am I talking about this? Well, I'm talking about it because not only did my mom ask me about it, (laughs) but also because I think we have a collective responsibility to reflect on it. So we all have our own individual experience, but then we're all interconnected. So we are also part of this larger whole, this part of humanity. And as part of being a human being, I think it's incumbent upon us to wisely reflect upon this larger body, particularly the body of fear that I think is so present right now. And I think we have a sense of this. You know, If I were to ask each of you, do you have a sense of just this kind of things bubbling up through the cracks, right? A sense of worry or anxiety or fear. And even as I'm talking about it now, notice if there's some sense of, oh yeah, I can even sense a bit of it. The other thing is to notice that when we talk about it, we actually then um, start to begin to move in a different direction. So we're moving out of this state of paralysis into a state of response. So how is this happening? It's happening because rather than identifying with the status quo, we are starting to reflect on what are the elements or the components of this that are keeping us stuck individually and collectively. And if I boil all this down, it's at the essence of what the Buddha was talking about. The Buddha said, there are these ways that we are actively misconceiving. It's like an optical illusion. And it's ongoing. It's not passive. It's an active process. And when we fail to remember that, then we see everything through this distorted view. And one of the images, which I so like to use, I won't do it here because it's full of water, but it's as though I were to pick up a cup and then turn it upside down and place it back down so that when I looked at it, it didn't look like a cup anymore. It's because I'm seeing it the wrong way around. It's a distortion. And so, so much of what we're trying to do in practice is to pick up the upside down cup, to flip it right side up and recognize it and say, ah, I see it clearly now. I see it as a cup. I see its usefulness. I know what it is. And there's a sense of freedom that comes with this. So one of the pieces that I had us explore in the guided practice tonight was around courage. And it's something that is part of practice. It's actually something that's present. It's already there. But again, 
we miss it because it's covered up, it's obscured. And it's an active process whereby we get stuck in stories, we get stuck in the larger narratives, the political narratives, we get stuck in the other narratives that show up that are so rooted in a mind state of worry or anxiety or fear that then that process, that state of anxiety or fear, then also obscures it for us. It covers it up. And again, it's active, it's ongoing. The more that you're in fear, the more that it breeds more fear. And the Buddha was quite clear on this. He basically said, whatever you think and ponder and reflect upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So the more that we're hanging out in the state and we don't necessarily recognize it on the collective level, we often can notice it on the individual level. We know when we're afraid. We know when we're anxious. We know when there's a sense of worry. But then on the collective level, it just seems so large. How do we handle this? What do we do? So this is where the practice of mindfulness is so powerful because it has two components which I'm going to speak about and unpack. One is this element of wisdom, which I mentioned earlier as wise reflection. This is one form that wisdom takes. Another is compassion. How do we actually meet the difficulty, but meet it with an inner capacity that doesn't leave us feeling diminished or depleted, completely exhausted? So why is this so important? Well, I had two kind of compelling reasons that I think are immediate, things that we can contact right now, right here, that's part of our community. So the first, as I'm sure so many of you have noticed, is the weather, right? This December, we've had lightning, we've had rain, we've had warm days, and then we have snow that kind of moves into lightning rain and then everything in between. And for me, when I connect with that, I become very attuned to how much the environment is changing how much my actions and our collective actions are having an impact and how much that it's starting to show up. And it's right here. It's right now. It's immediate. I know many of you know the climatologist and meteorologist Mark Seeley. He recently um, posted on uh, the university's blog, uh, which he does a lot often. He writes these little Uh, short articles, and he said that this year is on track for one of the warmest years in the state's history. Roughly 75% of all days over September 1 to December 22nd are warmer than normal. He said 2015 is likely to rank among the five or six warmest years in state history. And we know that it's having an impact. It's having an impact on all of the wildlife. It's having an impact on um, all of the livelihoods of many people. It's changing culture. It's changing climate that we're having to meet and to hold. So the other issue 
that I was going to mention, which again I think is so immediate, so palpable, is this one around social justice challenges. So I'll just ask, was anybody here today at the protests that were at the Mall of America? Yes. So just acknowledge that here in our community, right, we have several people that were there. And though for those of you that don't know, there were protests both at the Mall of America and the airport related to the recent police shooting. And what I always do is I'm trying to keep myself connected so that I don't numb myself, that I stay open to this larger pain, this larger challenge. So I was reading today, this was a recent study that was come out of the Public health, um, a public health researcher at St. Louis University, and it was published in the Journal of Urban Health. And so it was citing a very recent finding that found, and uh, this is a quote from the study, that black males are 21 times more likely than white males to be killed by a police officer. It also found that high-income blacks, again, this is a quote, high-income blacks are as likely as low-income blacks to be killed by a police officer. So it doesn't depend on the socioeconomic status. So why am I mentioning both of these topics? Well, as I said, it's present. This is present in our collective right now. So we want to orient to this. We want to have a sense because even if we don't think that we're influenced by it, we're affected by it. The news. We know people in our community. We know friends of friends. We all have a connection. So this is the collective piece. We also know from the larger national narratives around this. right? We see this collective narrative And we see the anger, we see the pain that's being played out. What about the personal? So again, I invite you to check in right now with your body, with your own experience. So even my mentioning of these topics is likely to evoke a certain physiological response. You might feel it in the body. There's an emotional quality. In naming this and acknowledging it, that can be felt, can be sensed. There's also all of our views. So even though I didn't take a side, my mentioning of it is already likely bringing up a view, that you have a view yourself. You've taken a position on both of these topics and many other topics. If we were in Europe, I might be talking about the refugees. So there are so many of these topics. And as I said at the very beginning, a lot of the narrative is rooted in fear. It's rooted in anxiety and worry. So what does this practice that we were just doing for 25 minutes, how does this relate? How does this connect? What could this possibly teach us? So I offer for your consideration, for you to check out, that it has a lot to teach us. And so 
I want you to connect with what's true for you as I start to explore and unpack this a little bit. So I have the good fortune of being able to work with a lot of different communities. And I had uh, a very wise student uh, who offered this reflection as part of a a final uh, project. This is what she said, and this is the quote. She said, if you ask most people if they agree that everyone should be able to eat and have shelter, there's little disagreement, right? If we say, should everyone be able to eat and have shelter? It's pretty hard to argue with that. And yet when we move into these larger issues that are complex, and yet in some ways they're not so complex because we're all human, we all get afraid, and we know the effects of fear in terms of how it warps our perception, our view, and it can drive how we act. And yet when we move into these Areas, the ones, just the two that I named. There are so many I could have named, you know, aside from the environment or from social justice. But what happens is the opposite seems to arise. So much disagreement comes up. There's so much discord. There's pain. There's difficulty. So something's happening when we're moving from a very human level, when I can ask the question, should everybody be able to eat and have shelter, to something that feels like perhaps it's not quite as connected, or at least the narratives take us away from that. The fear narrative takes us away. It pulls us out of the humanity of it. And it also closes us down. It can numb us. So what is it that's happening? And how is it that mindfulness can help? Well, I would suggest that there are two primary ways that mindfulness can help. One is just having the sensitivity. So when you are with your body and your breath, you are cultivating a certain sensitivity of awareness, a certain sensitivity of Attention, And it's this receptivity that watches, that receives experience, that is able to know. Its function is to actually know, to receive. So it's a watching function or a monitoring function. What's this other aspect of it? Well, there's another aspect of it that is a guardian. It's a protection. Because when we are present or mindful, we develop the sensitivity, then we can begin to start to reflect on what is here in the knowing. What is also present with the awareness? Is fear present? Or is fear absent? So both of these are the powerful functions of mindfulness, the sensitivity the monitoring, the staying with, just being attuned to. And then from that attunement comes the natural 
knowing of what else is here. So another example I can give you, it's a very old example, but it's a classic one, right? So, so often we focus on, if I pick up this striker, we focus on the striker, right? And the awareness is like my hand. I'm gripping the striker. It's something that I'm very passionate about. It's almost like I'm crushing the striker. So often we're focused on the striker. We miss what's happening in the awareness itself. The hand is actually completely wrapped around. You can see that I'm even starting to have white knuckles. Right? There's little room for movement. I'm completely stuck to the experience. But with the sensitivity of awareness, I can notice, oh, wait a minute. There's another way to meet this experience. And if I'm staying with this metaphor, again, it's a metaphor, so it's limited. Is there a way to be open with the experience? I'm not denying the reality of the experience. I'm still making contact. I'm here, but I'm open to the experience. I'm not like this, close-fisted, gripping for dear life onto the striker that I'm afraid I'm going to lose if I open the hand. It's a completely different orientation. And we develop this through our practice because we begin to notice with the attention how is it that we're meeting the experience. And this is why it's so powerful. So rather than taking my words, I always like to bring in a little backup, the word of the Buddha. So this is um, a passage uh, that I'll read. I'll give it to you um, as best as we know it. And then I'm going to unpack it a little bit. So here's the whole passage. This is from the Buddha. Before my enlightenment... While I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, which would be kindness, and thoughts of non-cruelty, which would be compassion. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of desire arose in me. I understood thus, this thought of desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to the other's affliction and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulty, and leads away from Nibbana. And Nibbana is many ways to translate it, but one way to translate it is freedom or peace. So leading away from freedom or peace. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the other's affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulty, leads away from Nibbana, leads away from peace and freedom, it subsided in me. 
So there's a lot in this statement. And what I'd like to do is just pick out a few places just to highlight, to underscore some of what's in here. So the first, which I think is so striking, is it starts out with, before my enlightenment. Which is so reassuring to me because it means that he's talking to all of us that this is accessible before my enlightenment. So it wasn't after his enlightenment that he was able to do this. It was before. As as he said, before my enlightenment. The next phrase, I understood thus. So in those three words, I understood thus, there's a lot that's happening. The first is the understanding is not this up in the coconut kind of understanding. The understanding is a mindful kind of understanding, which is an attunement. So it's sensitivity to what is happening in the body. What emotions are present? What mind states are present? Fear, right? Or worry or any other mind state. And then there's also what's happening. What is being generated out of those states? So I'm attuned to the body. I can feel what's happening. Feel the reality of it. As Suzuki Roshi said, trust your feet on the ground and your butt on the cushion the physicality of it, right? And then there's that attuning to this affective, the emotional. So what is here? What is present? Is this a state that is opening? A state that is allowing me to have capacity to meet this experience? Or is it a state that is limiting, that is constrictive, that is binding? The next piece that's in here, which I think is so beautiful because it's a practice practice instruction. It's these three domains of reflection. Leads to my own affliction. So you reflect. How is this actually affecting me in this moment? Oh, I can sense when fear is present. Wow, the body's contracted. Emotionally, I can feel that sense of Limited options. I can feel that sense of dread. You can feel it. It's visceral. Reflecting on leads to the other's affliction. So we actually stand in the shoes of another and we reflect. So if this feels like this for me, I'm willing to bet that this other person also experiences it because we're both human. And then the final reflection, which I think is so powerful, particularly for us right now, where we are as a world, this reflection of it leads to the affliction of both. So that which is co-created. So it's not just I'm reflecting on my own, I'm reflecting on the other, but I actually recognize that this nature, the nature of fear, the nature of these visitors that come into the heart and mind that constrict us, that burden us, the nature of them is to cause affliction on 
a much wider circle beyond just myself or the other, the affliction of both. It ripples out. It's the very nature of these states of mind. And then finally, the last piece, when I considered. So this is the wisdom function. So wisdom is this quality that when you become attentive, when you develop the knowing, there is a natural resonance that can say, yes, this is helpful. I can trust this. Mm, This one, not so helpful. I can feel the fact that it's depleting, it's draining, it's constricting, it's limiting. It narrows my view. And so this aspect of wisdom is what allows us to free the mind from fear. And as I mentioned, fear is a universal human mind state. We all experience fear at times. And if we don't lose connection with this fact, with the knowledge that fear is a mind state, it has a nature that tends to cause harm for ourselves, for others, and for both, then it can immediately drop us out of a narrative and connect us on the most basic level of what it means to be human. I fear, you fear, we fear. It becomes immediate. It's not a story not a concept. It's directly met, directly touched. So it's so easy to miss this. And it's so obvious too, but yet we forget. We get pulled away. And as the Buddha says, it's this that obstructs wisdom, causes difficulty, leads away from Nibbana. It's what I would call the sway of fear that pulls us away. So the challenge is that most of us aren't taught this, right? Most of us aren't taught how to work with fear. Can we recognize fear and say, ah, this is fear fearing. And I know how to wisely and skillfully work with fear. I know that fear is a universal human mind state. And that when it's present, its nature is to cause harm the affliction of myself, of others, and both. So what's the most practical method that we can use? The most practical method in any given moment is simply asking, what's happening now? Right? The minute we ask the question, what's happening now, there's that reflective quality of wisdom that just arises spontaneously. And asking the question connects you. But if you don't ask the question and you move into the view or the narrative or the story, 
then often fear comes along with it. And you've missed it because you haven't asked what's happening now. What is here right now? What's another immediate practical tool? Drop into the body. The body is an incredibly finely tuned sensitive instrument that gives you feedback all the time, particularly fear. Fear is like one of those ones where you know the body is telling you that there is fear present. Sweaty palms, you can feel the constriction in the joints, in the fingers. You can even feel the locking of the jaw, twitching of the eyes. Feel the bracing in the chest, perhaps even uh, getting smaller or wanting to get bigger. We can feel the leaning back on our heels. All of these different signals, so many that are being presented in a moment, but if we're not wisely reflecting, we're not mindful, we miss it. So then it means that that guardian is gone. And then we get caught. And then fear reacts to fear. Fear feeds fear. And more fear grows. One of my favorite quotes is from Dr. Ellen Langer. She says that we are rarely in doubt, but often in error. Because we forget to ask a question. We assume something. And the power of this practice is this wise reflection so that we switch that. So we go, oh, I can see that this is just a view. There's an error, a misperception. And then it also means that we don't get caught. We're not stuck. We don't create more confusion, more fear. Another quote uh, from, actually this one wasn't from the Buddha. It was from one of the Arahants, which was one of the awakened beings. So this is somebody just like us that put these teachings into practice and then discovered for themselves that it was possible. And so this story came from a famous uh, dialogue between a Greek king and this monk. And it's called The Questions of King Melinda. And King Melinda was known to be very (laughs) persistent with questions to the point where all the monks kind of left and went to go find this arahant and said, please come back with us and talk to this king because there's no end to these questions. And we can't practice, really, unless you can really just, can you help him understand so we're not getting so many questions. So there's a famous uh, dialogue in this where um, this King Melinda asks Nagasena, which is the monk, and says, so what, which factor, so there are these seven factors that the Buddha talks about that wake us up, that really lead to this understanding, this breakthrough, awakening, understanding, peace, freedom. Which of it is it? And Nagasena, without missing a beat, says it's investigation, wise reflection, dhamma vichaya, reflecting on the nature of things, actively investigating them. So this is the power at all levels. At the highest level, it has the moment to completely change our perspective. There's an awakening moment and understanding all the way down to what's happening right now. It's the same function or quality. And so we're cultivating this very powerful function of the mind. 
So I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about this last piece, compassion, because I've talked quite a bit now about wisdom and how it is that it starts to work with fear. Let me talk about compassion. And so when I say compassion, what I'm talking about is this quality of the heart to meet the most difficult experience in ourself and in others. It's the ability to hold and to meet. That's what this compassion is. There's a wonderful phrase that when I was a student that I came across, it was from a famous theologian, Paul Tillich, and he had this book, The Courage to Be. And you don't need to read the book at all because I think the title really just gets it. It's The Courage to Be, right? How do we actually step in the space to just be with ourselves, to be with others? It takes a certain courageousness. But this is the capacity of compassion to step into that space. So I have a um, short personal example, which I was on a long retreat. And I remember this vividly. I really remember it. And I had been practicing for a while, doing what we were doing here, really cultivating this very sensitive moment-to-moment attention. And I came back into my room And I happened to notice that there was a friend that had joined me in the room. There was a spider that was kind of walking across the floor. And so as part of my own vow of non-harming, I recognized this as another living being. And so I went outside to grab one of these little cups and to gently place it and then to be able to pick up the spider very gently and place it outside and say, may you be happy and hopefully I'll be happy as well. So as I got the cup and I came back into my room, the spider started to speed up, started to go really fast. And so I sped up and I quickly placed the cup over the spider. And I did it so quickly that I caught one of the spider's legs. And I caught it right under the rim of the cup. And I was, because I was mindful, I felt the ouch of that. And I actually quickly moved the cup off of that spider leg. And I got down very close to the spider. And I could see as the spider pulled its leg in and with another leg just started to kind of caress it. And in that moment, I felt the ouch of that experience. I was with that being. This is a function of compassion. So I know that I had caused harm. And in fact, I was causing harm because I was reacting, right? The speed of the spider moving caused me to get anxious, and so then I moved quicker, and the two of them together created harm. Not only harm for this being, but harm for me, because I know that I had caused this harm. Even though I didn't intend it, I had caused this harm. And I remember this so vividly, because I can still see that spider as it's, you know, caressing its own leg that had been pinched under the cup. But I was sensitive enough to notice it and to feel the ouch of it, to not collapse into shame around it, to not collapse into anger at myself around it, to feel the ouch of it, to understand the ouch of it, and then to make a resolve to be mindful so that the next time I don't repeat the same harm. There's value in the reflection. The compassion actually allowed for learning. 
So there's a, another uh, way that I can demonstrate this, which is <clears throat> we can think about this, and this is a dear colleague of mine, um, I think first showed this to me, and she's really great at demonstrating it. So we can think about when we first start practice, we have a certain amount of pain. Let's say it's this big. And our ability to hold that pain is about this big. Right? But the power of this practice, of just meeting our experience again and again gently, means that over time, the pain still this big, but our capacity to hold becomes this big. Notice that the pain itself doesn't need to change. It's the capacity or the container that's able to meet it. That it that's what's changing. That's the difference. That's the transformative power of these practices and of compassion in particular, to meet and to keep meeting and to allow that capacity to develop and to be patient. So the last few things that I want to end with, and then I'll open it up, because I really want to hear the wisdom of this group, which is all of this is leading to the very end that I was speaking about uh, in the guided practice, which is courage. So when we know this aspect of wisdom, when we know this aspect of wise reflection, when we know this capacity of compassion to be with, to meet an experience, and when we see it even in small doses, to whatever degree we touch in our own practice, it gives us confidence. There is a certain confidence that develops. It shows us that it's possible. And from that confidence or possibility, that is the wellspring of courage. Because it means that we develop the courage to do it again and again and again. And we come out of fear and paralysis. James Barraz, who is one of my um, teachers, uh, has a wonderful way of saying this. He says, (coughs) the difference is when we first start, it's as though fear or any of these other mind states is in the driver's seat. It's just driving and it's completely freaked out and it's taking us wherever it wants to go. And over time, we become the designated driver for fear. We say, let me take the keys. You take the keys and you say, let me, let me buckle you in. I'm going to buckle you in. And let me make sure that you have, If maybe sometimes you need a helmet. I'll put the helmet on fear, right? And then... I'll drive. It's not to get rid of the fear. It's just to say that I don't want you in the driver's seat. It's not actually good because it's going to cause harm, just like when a designated driver takes the keys. That's wisdom. So to end, what I would like to share is, particularly in this month, this month has so many holidays. I was looking at this. We have Hanukkah. We have Bodhi Day which is the day that the Buddha sat under the tree and made the resolution for enlightenment. That's in this month, Bodhi Day. We have the Zuni and Hopi soil ceremony, the offering of prayers connected with the changing of the year. We have Malid, which is the Muslim um, observance of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday. We have Kwanzaa. We have Christmas. We even have the Zoroastrian observance of the passing of the prophet Zoroaster, all in this month. 
And so I'd like us to just remember and remind ourselves that with all of these holidays, from all of these different traditions, that developing this wisdom and compassion is so critically important to moving personally and collectively towards courage. And so the quote that I'd like to end with is from Minga Rinpoche, who many of you probably know. Uh, He's uh, been wandering. He's actually out of retreat now, but he was wandering for four years, is that right? Four and a half, thank you. Four and a half years. Wandering yogi, just out there with whatever was arising. So he has a wonderful quote from, this is the joy of living, and I'll end with this. It says, whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy, you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear, anger, or aversion, you can't help but see that everyone around you feels the same fear, anger, and aversion. When you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourself and others automatically dissolve, and the ancient prayer of the four immeasurables becomes as natural and persistent as your own heartbeat. So here is the prayer of the four immeasurables. May all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all sentient beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all sentient beings have joy and the causes of joy. May all sentient beings remain in great equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. So let's sit for just a moment. Connecting again with your being. Thank you for your wise and kind attention. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.